Hi, and welcome to Top in Tech. This week, we're going to focus on global taxation and the tech sector. If you cast your mind back a decade, the tech clash in Europe and other parts of the world had its origins in media and public outrage at perceived low rates of tax paid by large, often American, tech platforms. This led to a whole range of policy interventions. We saw the EU launch competition cases. We saw the launch of digital services taxes across the world. And we saw transatlantic trade tensions in response to this. Ultimately, this transformed into an international process at the OECD. And in recent weeks, we have seen the publishing of what has been called an outcome statement from the OECD on the global taxation process. So it's a timely moment for us to review where we've got to and where we're going on global digital taxes. My name is Colin Darcy and I'm a Senior Practice Director at GC and joining me today is John Garvey, Practice Director for International Policy and he is Global Council's lead on the OECD BEPS process. So John, as I mentioned, we've had a new development with the outcomes statement, but before we jump into the ins and outs of that statement and the agreement that underlies it, can you just talk to us how we've got to this point so far? Hi, Conan. Thanks. Well, yes, as you said, this is really this is really quite a long-standing process that uh, has its roots in the early 2010s. The OECD G20 Inclusive Framework um, is also often referred to as BEPS. Now, that stands for Base Erosion and Profit Sharing. And in other words, the agreement and the process of born from a very long-held sense that multinationals, particularly digital platforms, were avoiding tax by booking their business in low or no-tax jurisdictions. And there are really there are really two main trends behind this. First, as you said, the growth of the digital platforms in the sense that these intangible businesses uh, could could make outsized profits um, it, without without paying the tax that they should in those markets. But secondly, also, uh, we shouldn't forget that the 2010s were obviously a period of fiscal austerity and the many governments in the West were therefore uh, looking a lot more closely at tax avoidance. Now, throughout the 2010s, what that led to was uh, a growth of enthusiasm for digital services taxes, particularly in European markets, um, including, including the UK. And in response to these digital services taxes, uh, we then saw um, uh, the threat from the US uh, under President Trump of retaliatory tariffs. So it was really that process that finally uh, sort of kick-started, not kick-started, but sort of catalyzed, catalyzed the OECD process into finally reaching uh, what was a very significant agreement in November 2021 when 138 countries signed up to what we now call the OECD G20 framework to reform international tax. So the the interesting point to note for those listeners who tune in regularly is is the contrast here between this policy and pretty much every other single one that we talk about week in week out in the fact that although as John will no doubt go on to explain the OECD processes has not concluded we do have an international agreement we do have an international process to address one of the key issues in digital policy. When it comes to data transfers, comes to AI governance, when it comes to issues around content moderation, et cetera, et cetera, that has been a huge gaping hole in the global governance agenda surrounding the tech policy for the past 15 years. And there isn't a huge amount of prospects outside of tax policy for that to change. 
So, John, let's go into, you've given us the potted history of how we got here. Can you just describe what is in the basic agreement from 2021 and how does that relate to the outcome statement? Yeah, sure. So uh, there there are two main pillars of um, the inclusive framework agreement, pillar one and pillar two. So pillar one provides a mechanism for reallocation of profits from markets in which multinationals are headquartered to those in which their revenues are earned. And that is a very, very material change in international tax practice. If it does get properly implemented at some stage, and I'll come on to that, it would change decades of practice in bilateral tax agreements. Now, Pillar 1 only applies to companies with more than 20 billion in revenues, 20 billion euros in revenues, and a profit margin above 10%. And so it's those companies that then would be uh, have a portion of their profits, the so-called amount A, would be taxed in the jurisdictions in which they have sales. Um, pillar 2 provides for a global minimum corporation tax of 15% to companies with over 750 million euros in revenues. So that obviously goes much, much wider than the digital platforms. Now, most of the energy since November 2021 has been in implementation of that pillar two, the global minimum tax agreement. And it indeed, generally, when you hear people talking about BEPS, it it is often that 15% uh, minimum tax they're referring to. Um, in practice, negotiations have always developed on, on parallel tracks. So the OECD basically... Uh, had decided at that point in November 2021 that while they wanted the two, while they while they viewed the two pillars as essentially indivisible, it would be sensible to sequence them. So uh, the signatories were essentially asked to try and implement pillar two first because it was easier. Over 50 countries have now taken some sort of steps towards implementation. The most significant step has been uh, in the EU where the directive has been agreed and all member states are on track to implement by the end of this year. But uh, there is a big stumbling block internationally in that the US still hasn't uh, introduced legislation which would transpose pillar to international law. And there is quite a lot of opposition to doing so. Uh, the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, um, uh, Republican Jason Smith, has recently introduced a proposal uh, which would uh, put forward retaliatory legislation um, countering laws adopted by foreign countries applying those minimum taxes to U.S. companies. That probably won't get through, but it gives you a sense of the U.S. politics. But if you thought that was hard, if you thought Pillar 2 was hard, Pillar 1 will be much, much harder. And Pillar 1, Pillar 1 was really supposed to be the focus of uh, this OECD meeting that happened a couple of weeks ago. So the OECD had said that by summer this year, by summer 2023, they would publish a draft treaty which would then form the basis of implementation of Pillar Pillar 1 because Pillar 1 is much more sort of fundamental uh, inroads into national um, sovereignty over tax, if you like. It would require, it requires a full international treaty. Um, but basically there hasn't been enough agreement 
up to this point in order to publish uh, the technical details which would underpin such a treaty. So what we got instead from the OECD was essentially an outcome statement summarizing progress so far, but then crucially um, agreeing, agreeing amongst the signatories that the moratorium on additional digital services taxes would be extended until the end of uh, next year, until the end of 2024. It was set to expire at the end of this year. You're saying there there was supposed to be a much more comprehensive agreement by this point, and instead we have the outcome statement. So what does this mean for timing? Do you see this as something that is a minor delay, but we have continued momentum behind the process? Or do you think there is a risk of indefinite delay? So this is where it gets even more complicated. So the outcome statement commits signatories to extend the moratorium on DSTs until the end of 2024, as I said. But that is conditional on at least 30 jurisdictions, representing at least 60% of the multinational profits in question, to sign up this year. So in effect, that would mean that the US would have to sign a treaty this year. So in order to keep the momentum going, what we really need is the technical work to be done that enables the OECD to publish a treaty text by the end of this year, which the US and a number of other major economies sign. If we don't get that, the process then begins to uh, look in very serious trouble. So let's get into that point, John. Obviously, we all know the long backstory of US policy where agreements are made at an international level, but then administrations struggle to get those same agreements through Congress. So let's analyze that. If the US has to sign a treaty this year, what do you rate the prospects of the Biden administration, firstly, having the political appetite and willingness to do this, but then secondly, its ability to get that through Congress? So I would go back to uh, a comment you made earlier, which was the sort of anomaly of the November 2021 agreement. Um, as you said, you know, we're living through an era in which global governance seems to be failing in all sorts of areas. And that treaty at the time really felt like uh, a high watermark for multilateralism, if you like. And it was certainly talked up in those terms by Biden and by Janet Yellen and by other parts of the administration. But there's always been a disconnect between the administration and Congress on this. As I've said, you've seen that you've seen that to some degree on Pillar 2, but it's much, much more pronounced on Pillar 1 because there is uh, a far a far greater section of US political opinion that basically believes that Pillar 1 has been framed as a specific attack on US tech companies and therefore needs to be rebuffed. So you have a situation in which the OECD could publish the treaty text this year. The administration could sign that treaty text and that would then give you enough forward momentum to keep the process alive. But you would still be facing a situation in which is almost inconceivable that Congress would actually implement that legislation during this term because uh, tax treaty ratification would require majority in the Senate um, and there really just doesn't look to be uh, 
look to be a way through to getting that. So then you come back to what does it mean if um, the administration does sign it, but all the other signatories know that actually this agreement isn't going to be ratified during this presidential term. Some of those dynamics or some of that thinking, if you like, is probably behind um, one of the most interesting things that came out of uh, the negotiations around this outcome statement, which was Canada's refusal to sign. Now, Canada see, is one of those countries that we think of as a very, very committed multilateralist. Uh, but Christina Freeland's reasoning behind non-signing was that she couldn't justify not bringing forward a Canadian DST, given that everyone else's DSTs, which were already in operation, were still there and Canada was effectively losing money by not having one. I think the real reasoning behind that is also that we're just not making progress towards uh, implementation of Pillar 1. If if she had thought that the US was going to ratify it, would be able to ratify it within the next couple of years, I very much doubt uh, she would have taken that decision. I guess if our calculation there is that it's unlikely to happen before the presidential elections next year, there is that additional uncertainty that we could see a change of administration. We could have a new president. And in particular, if Donald Trump is that president, that uncertainty and unpredictability is not a particularly favourable backstory on which countries like Canada are going to make longer term decisions about their taxation policy. But let's get into other dynamics here, John, because it's not just is it's not just Canada that have caused issues. There's been a running thread throughout the negotiations around the global south and developing countries and complaints that we've heard a lot that the OECD essentially is a rich rich nations club and they're not taking into account the interests of other countries in designing these frameworks. So can you just give us a few thoughts on where, where that's got to? Have we seen similar objections and refusals to sign the outcome statement uh, like we saw with Canada, but with other countries uh, in the developing world? So it, it's worth dwelling on the history of this a bit. As you say, the OECD is often um, characterized or stigmatized as a rich man's club. And the fact that uh, the fact that this framework is called an inclusive framework is um, significant in itself because what the OECD has tried to do, the OECD and the G20 working together, is to create a much larger group of countries under a supposedly much more democratic um, process, which would favor not just um, not just advanced economy interests, but the interests of uh, much less developed markets, which were supposedly losing revenue because of the way um, the multinationals in question could operate. That hasn't really been the sense from many of um, governments, commentators from less developed countries uh, that we've talked to over the last couple of years. There have been lots of complaints that uh, the OECD hasn't engaged enough with those countries. There have been a lot of complaints that the country's interests haven't been taken into account, and not not just in terms of the ultimate uh, the ultimate fiscal outcomes, but also in the sense that what is being proposed, particularly through Pillar One, is very very complex um, requires very very complex uh, capacity, if you like, 
and that the capacity building and the capacity building assistance hasn't been on offer to developing countries in such a way as would allow them to prepare for implementation. So that 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 has been a fairly long-held complaint. Um, and one of the manifestations that perhaps we'll go on to talk about a bit has been sort of parallel, been calls for some kind of parallel or alternative process at the UN, which by nature of the UN would be more representative, more reflective of developing country interests. We did see this spark up a bit again around uh, the outcome statement negotiations. The most interesting instance of this was probably Sri Lanka, which has become a bit of a lightning rod for other developing country concerns. So Sri Lanka refused to sign the outcome statement. And it's similar to Canada. The government said that it didn't want to sign it because it is uh, committed to imposing a domestic DST, digital service tax, in the absence of a multilateral solution. It felt that the multilateral solution wasn't within immediate sight. It needs revenue badly. Sri Lanka, as we know, is in um, debt distress at the moment. Then where it gets really interesting is that there have been various allegations swelling about that the IMF and the OECD uh, worked in tandem to impose pressure on the Sri Lankans to sign and suggested that um, further IMF lending to Sri Lanka would be contingent on them signing the statement. Now, we don't know whether that's true, but that has been um, that has been alleged in print by people like Joe Stiglitz. So it is it is uh, it is a fairly important charge to answer. But as I said, Sri Lanka has Sri Lanka has uh, refused to sign it so far. And I would expect, you know, at the point at which we get to an actual treaty text being tabled, more of these countervailing pressures will come to the fore because if people think that the US, yes, may sign it, but may not ratify it, the incentive for countries, particularly countries that are A, in debt distress, and B, with fairly populist governments in place, the incentive for those countries to sign will be significantly weaker. So we're painting a somewhat pessimistic picture here, John. You've got the US likely to be unable to get the deal passed quickly enough. We've got Canada refusing to sign. We've got Sri Lanka refusing to sign. We suspect behind those countries, there's a bunch of other countries who are ready not to move forward with the agreement if the US doesn't as well. So there is a very clear question, particularly those on the line who work at companies who are trying to navigate this situation, to think a little bit about how this might play out. Is your view that if there is no agreement, what we are going to see, a little bit like the motivation for Sri Lanka and Canada, is a whole new set of national DSTs, digital services taxes, crop up, and also those digital services taxes which others have in place but aren't necessarily applying at the moment would be reactivated as well as potentially other forms of digital taxation and i guess if you're looking at it from the prism of a multinational potentially the nightmare scenario where rather than one single global regime they're going to have to deal with hundreds of different taxes across the globe well as you say that that is a nightmare for pretty much uh, any global corporate. No one wants to face 
a proliferation of slightly difficult and very hard to interpret national DSTs. And this is why I think that the scales are actually pretty finely balanced because you're right, it is very hard to see a situation in which um, in which this all uh, in which we we get to uh, full ratification, full implementation of pillar one within the next couple of years within this presidential term. But there is a very, very great uh, incentive um, for Democrats and Republicans not to um, precipitate a world in which we have the, that proliferating regime of DSTs. If you remember before, um, as I said at the beginning, when when the the Trump tariffs were threatened, um, that is what that is what essentially pushed the world towards towards the November 2021 agreement. It is seems to me very unlikely that we will get back into a situation in which you have a US government threatening retaliatory tariffs on an even greater number of uh, of economies around the world. Um, it is a risk, obviously, but there is it is not a route that anyone is going to want to go down. So there will be there will be very significant pressure on on the US, on on US politicians, as well as politicians in the EU to try and keep the OECD process alive. So there I suppose there is a sense in which you could say, you know, the OECD process is clearly imperfect. It's clearly um, been flawed in process terms. It's hard to work out what the um, political realization of it will be in the near term. But then if you look at any of the alternatives, they are quite obviously materially worse, both for most multinational companies, but also also ultimately for uh, most of the advanced economies in question. I think the great distinction is you you point to, John, about why we've ended up in a multilateral process with tax and not with, say, digital competition policy or data transfers is that there's that threat of a trade tariff reaction has been the stimulus for it. But as you as you rightly point out, it's hard to see if if you see dozens, if not hundreds of countries bringing in their own digital taxes, the, the effectiveness of that threat is somewhat diminished. So the question, I guess, then will go to how does the US then react in that situation? Is that enough of a stimulus to the domestic debate in Washington for the administration to be able to try and force something through, say, under a second Biden term after the election? Anyway, we're entering the slight realm of what well, I am, at least entering the slight realm of speculation there. So let's move on to concrete. Final question, the concrete next steps. So for those who are listening, what do they need to look out for? When's the next key moment that gives an indication on whether this is moving in the right direction or regressing? The one fixed big moment uh, to go this year will be um, the G20 Leaders Summit in Delhi, which takes place in the second week of September. If technical work has gone well, you might expect them to, at the least, foreshadow um, the release of the actual treaty text, which countries will then be asked to sign by the end of this year, as I said, implement by the end of next year. If we get to that point mid-September and we still haven't got a treaty text on the table or nearly on the table, 
it's pretty hard to see how uh, the process would be kept alive, um, kept alive throughout the following year. As ever with these things, it is always possible to just miss, push the uh, goalposts to the right a little bit and set a new deadline. And as I said, because because of the incentives to to not um, to not make it appear that the process has actually died. I think the OECD, the US, the EU will be doing absolutely everything that they can to to try and secure that. Um, it's, it's worth saying as well that and we haven't talked about Europe that much, but if that outcome statement had not released this sort of new set of parameters, new set of deadlines, it would have been incumbent on the Spanish presidency to bring forward a directive, a draft directive for an EU-wide DST. Now, that's something that the Spanish presidency really wouldn't have wanted to do because uh, it'd be very difficult for all sorts of reasons. That's been avoided, but at such a point as which the process had appeared to die, you would be under pressure to do that once again in Europe as well. So we people, uh, people should just keep an eye on the European dynamics of this as well, what is being called for uh, by the Commission, but also by the Parliament. So we've had one big delay that we've been talking about today, but I guess there might be scope, as you seems to be what you're saying, John, for potentially a further delay if we don't quite hit this deadline. The ability to indefinitely delay is restricted by those domestic pressures, not least in the European Union, where there will be less and less patience as we move into next year in the absence of an international agreement. So look, thanks, John, for taking us through what is a immensely complicated issue, both on the technical detail of the agreements themselves, but also in the geopolitical dynamics between a whole host of countries globally. And we only scratched the surface on some of that. To those on the line, thanks for joining us as ever. If you're interested in continuing the conversation about global tax policy, you can find John's details and those of his team on our website or on the link to the podcast notes. So our website is www.global-council.com. Thanks for joining and see you next week. Bye-bye.